Okay, well, as you may recall from the message that I preached from this pulpit a month ago, I began then with the question, what does the church need most? I was preaching from Acts chapter 20. It's the, the farewell address of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders, having spent three years with the church that he planted there in Ephesus. And then we further considered Paul's final words to Timothy, written from a Roman prison just before Paul was executed for spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And in both of those parting words, Paul's message was the same. What the church needs most is to hear the voice of our shepherd in his word and to follow him. It's a call to center our lives and our gatherings around the study of God's word. This is the foremost foundational commitment of a healthy church. For it is through his word that Christ rules his people. So let's talk about God's written word, the world that he has created. God has spoken through 66 books, written by more than 40 different authors, over the span of more than 1,500 years, with portions written in three different languages and from within very different contexts and cultures, at very different times in history. If this great collection of diverse writings is the final authority and all things to which it speaks, if it is the foundation upon which we are to build Christ's church, where do we begin? How do we begin to wrap our minds around all that God has said? What is of first importance? What is the most important thing? Put differently, is there a central message around which everything else revolves, to which everything else points, and from which everything else flows? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament letter, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It can be found on page 176 in the second half of the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. 
Only your word and the work of your spirit can transform our hearts and our lives. And so we pray that we may hear your voice in all that you have spoken, that we may be changed by our hearing. Bless the preaching of your word. In and for the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now I would remind you, he writes in verse 1, of the gospel, that is the good news I preach to you, which you received, that is which you accepted, in which you stand, and, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. That is, unless your faith is not genuine. Each one of us stands or falls before God based on whether we are genuinely exercising faith in the gospel, whether we are genuinely holding fast to what God has spoken through his word. Every church stands or falls based on whether they have collectively committed to firmly standing upon the foundation of God's word. This is clearly a very serious matter, but what is this gospel upon which we stand or fall? How would you answer that? Is it the message that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I used to hear that a lot. Is that the gospel? Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Five powerful words. Let's break them down. Who is this Christ? But that word Christos is simply the Greek form of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which gets translated into English as Messiah. It means anointed one. And it's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the king of the Jews. By the time of the first century when this was written, largely because of the way the word Messiah, Christ, is used in Daniel chapter 9 regarding a king who is still to come, Messiah, or Christ, had come to be used to refer to a new king who would rise up to deliver Israel from the oppressive rule of the Romans. You see, this Christ is the one promised in the very beginning. As the curse for mankind's rebellion against God was first announced in Genesis chapter 3, so too was the promise of a Savior the offspring of Eve, who would crush the head of the evil one, reversing the curse that hangs so heavy upon this world. This Christ is the one promised to come from the line of Abraham, the one through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis chapter 12. This Christ is the one to come, the promised one, to come as a new Moses, as Moses himself foretold in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. It is to him that you shall listen. This Christ is the promised one to come from the kingly line of David. The one who would be raised up to sit on the throne of God's kingdom forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, but if Jesus is this Christ, the anointed king who had been promised to come. Why did the people to whom he came torture and kill him? Why did the Jewish people collaborate with their oppressors, the Romans, to kill their promised Messiah, their deliverer? It was because 
We did not come to bring the kind of worldly deliverance from their circumstances that they desired. He was the Christ they needed, but not the Christ they wanted, and so they killed him. You see, they didn't know their Bibles. Notice that Paul says in verse 3 of our passage that the death of Christ was, quote, in accordance with the Scriptures. Even the passage from Daniel chapter 9 that uses the word Messiah, Christ, to speak of a coming anointed king who would deliver his people, well, that passage foretold that upon his coming, he would, quote, be cut off and have nothing. Doesn't sound like deliverance from the Romans, does it? Hanging on the cross, just before he breathed his last breath, Jesus cried out the opening words, the title of a psalm, the 22nd psalm, written by King David to describe the suffering of the Messiah who was to come from his line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. Describing death on a cross hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented by wicked men. And then through the prophet Isaiah, it was foretold of the Christ, it was foretold of the servant of the Lord who would bring God's salvation, that, quote, his appearance would be disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Doesn't sound like victory over the Romans, does it? It was there in black and white, but the people of God did not pay attention to what had been foretold about Christ in God's word. They had fashioned for themselves their own idea of who Christ would be. They fashioned for themselves their own idea of who God is. And as a result, they put to death the God of life. What about you? Are you following the Christ of Scripture? Or a Christ of your own imagining? Are you more concerned with deliverance from your difficult circumstances here and now, or with deliverance from the dreadful consequences of your sin for eternity? You see, Christ did not come to conquer nations through military strength. No, he came to conquer sin through a substitutionary death. Christ died for our sins, on our behalf, in our place, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the sinless one for sinners. We have all followed in the path of humanity's first father and mother, rejecting God's rule over us and declaring for ourselves the right to determine what is right and wrong for our lives. And like them, we are hopelessly bad judges of how we should live, and what we most need. Thus our utter dependence upon our God to speak to us through his word. 
And his word declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Picking up where I left off in Isaiah 53, teaching clearly about the substitutionary death of the coming Messiah, Isaiah writes this, Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Lord has put him to grief. God the Son humbled himself by becoming a man living the moral life that you and I have failed to live, and suffering the death that our sins demand in our place. As Paul continues in verse 4 of chapter 15, he was buried, proving that he was in fact dead, but he did not stay buried, for he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, then to the twelve, proving that he had in fact been raised, proving that the sacrifice that he offered for sins, the sacrifice of himself in our place, had been accepted by the Father. As Paul goes on to say in verse 17 of our chapter, if Christ has not been raised, if he's not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is an essential, non-negotiable part of the gospel message. As Paul famously wrote in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then and only then will you be saved. Without Christ's resurrection, we would have no assurance that his sacrifice had been accepted. Without faith in that resurrected Christ, whatever faith we have is in a different Christ. Without faith in the resurrected Christ, we are still dead in our sins. On the Friday following Christ's death, his followers were not gathered together celebrating the cross and saying, hey, you know what we should do? We should gather together every Friday from here on out to celebrate the gruesome death of our leader on a, as a criminal on a tree. No. Where were they? They were huddled behind locked doors, denying that they ever knew him and fearful that the same fate would befall them. No, it was not until they beheld the risen Lord that they confessed him to be their God and committed themselves to gathering weekly from then on, on the first day of the week, on Sunday morning, every Sunday. For what purpose? To celebrate his resurrection from the dead. For he is risen. As Paul writes in verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What's Paul doing here? He's telling his contemporaries to go investigate the matter. Talk to the hundreds of eyewitnesses who were there. 
See if these things aren't so. One of the many ways in which the Christian faith is radically different from the religions of the world is that Christianity is not merely a set of ideas or philosophies or moral teachings. No, unlike the religions of the world, Christianity is grounded upon certain historical events, most notably and centrally the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And here's the deal. It cannot be denied that this Christian faith spread like wildfire at a time and in a place when and where these claims could have been refuted, but they weren't. Instead, what we have is the record of the continued spread of these claims in the face of terrible persecution from both Jews and Greeks alike, resulting in the horrific suffering of many of Christ's first disciples, including Paul, for no earthly benefit to themselves whatsoever. How do you account for that? It's not like these people believe that by putting themselves, quote, in danger every hour, as Paul puts it in verse 30, that they were somehow earning their salvation. That's the entire point of the message for which they are being persecuted. Their message is you can't do anything to earn your salvation. Either Christ has paid it all, or you are still dead in your sins. So if they weren't earning their eternal salvation by putting themselves in harm's way, or, or otherwise profiting off of this, why do it? Except that, quote, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, as Paul puts it in verse 20. The historical record continues to this day. Thousands of years later, this message is continuing to spread, and wherever it goes, people's lives are utterly transformed by the grace of God that is with them, as was Paul's. By the grace of God, we are what we are. By the grace of God, those who are transformed by this message go from being self-centered, self-serving narcissists to being self-sacrificing servants of others, proclaiming a gospel that brings them derision from all who refuse to bend the knee to this crucified yet risen king. This is the irrefutable historical record continuing to this day with which all of us must grapple. And as Paul argued, these historical realities are themselves the fulfillment of ancient prophecies. For it wasn't just the cross of the Messiah, but also the resurrection of the Messiah that took place, quote, in accordance with the scriptures. Well, how so? Which prior scriptures, which Old Testament texts spoke of Christ's resurrection? Well, there are numerous that we could turn to, but let's stay in Isaiah 53, where I've been reading. The closing three verses of Isaiah 53 explicitly speak of the coming servant of the Lord as being alive after his death. After having been poured out, having poured out his soul to death, now he is interceding on behalf of those for whom he died, for he lives. Seated around the table at the Last Supper, just before being handed over to this terrible death, Jesus explicitly taught that this Old Testament verse from Isaiah 53, verse 12, was about his death and about his resurrection. And then, having risen from the dead, Jesus rebuked two of his disciples on the Emmaus Road for having failed to understand this, saying to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's about him. And then, while appearing to even more of his disciples, he went on to say this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, everything written about me in the prophets, everything written about me in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, to understand the Old Testament, Luke 24. You see, there is one central message of the Bible around which everything else revolves, to which everything else points, and from which everything else flows. It is the message of the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that must be the message of this church to the world around us. This is our mission. This is of first importance. This is the most important thing. We have no right to alter this message. We have no right to craft one that is more palatable to a dying, rebellious world. That is what we are tempted to do, and that's what was happening in Corinth. Paul wrote chapter 15 to them, because some of them were claiming that the followers of Christ would not be raised from the dead on the last day to enter into his glorious presence forever, at least not with physical bodies. Why would they deny that? Well, they had allowed the prevailing views of the culture around them to infect their thinking. As one scholar put it, the idea that God would resurrect a human corpse revolted Greco-Roman pagans. They believed that the material body had no future beyond the grave, that only the immaterial soul is immortal. And that flowed from the thinking that the material body is somehow inherently sinful. It's not Jesus took one on. It's the same kind of thinking that led other false teachers to argue that Christ himself never really had a body. The seekers class on Sunday mornings have been studying 1 John, and that's what he's addressing, the false teaching that Jesus did not really take on a human body, or certainly he never suffered a torturous death on a cross. The prevailing views of the culture around them infected their thinking. What about in our day? What prevailing views of the culture around us threaten to infect our thinking? What does today's world find most distasteful about the Christ of Scripture? One might be tempted to think that it's primarily his clear teaching regarding God's design for gender, and sexuality, and marriage. Or maybe his clear teaching regarding the sanctity of human life in the womb. But you would be wrong. What today's world finds most distasteful about the Christ of Scripture is what it has always found most distasteful. It is what his life, his death, and his resurrection say about us. For his life, his death, and his resurrection declare to us that we are so hopelessly sinful that in order for us to be made right with God, God the Son had to take on human flesh. He had to live the moral life that we have failed to live, and he had to die in our place, suffering the wrath that we deserve for our sins. Surely I'm not so bad as that, we cry out in our pride, insisting on keeping some measure of the glory for ourselves. 
This is what Paul refers to as, quote, the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross in Galatians 5. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter in their writings, they repeatedly refer to the cross of Christ as, quote, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense over which many people fall and are crushed. But any attempt to remove this very distasteful stumbling block from our message removes Christ from our message. And without his cross and his resurrection, there is no salvation. Without his cross and his resurrection, we have nothing to offer a lost and dying world. Without his cross and his resurrection, whatever message we have to give is utterly irrelevant. Without his cross and his resurrection, we are robbing him of his glory. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, says this, Being found in human form, Christ Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Do not rob him of his glory by diminishing or removing the message of his cross and his resurrection. It is only through the proclamation of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that people are humble to the point of openly declaring to all who will listen, yes, I really am that sinful. I am that great of a sinner that God had to die for me, but Christ is a greater Savior. To him be the glory forever and ever. Come to him and receive life. Let us serve and worship him together, for he is not dead. He is risen. The foundational commitment of every healthy church is the commitment to center our lives and our gatherings around the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Christ of Scripture, understanding that the message of his substitutionary life, death, and resurrection from the dead for our sins is the most important thing. As Patrice and Teresa saying, here, here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation, is the name of which we boast. Lamb of God, for sinners wounded, sacrificed to cancel guilt, none shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have. Father, by your Spirit, may your word be the foundation stone upon which the life of this church is built. May we never shy away from the centrality of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, both for our own lives and for the life of everyone we meet, no matter how offensive it may be. Bless the preaching of your word. In and for the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.